Lori Lightfoot blames all of her city's problems on neighboring states. Democrats deny the fact that Portland is under any sort of violent protest here. Whistleblowers are apparently patriotic if they go against the evil orange man, but dark, death, and evil if they go after the Obama administration. And we talk about the highest paid person at the Washington Post. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. Sorry for the long title card there. I got up and realized that I didn't have my monitor set. So they're all set up. We're ready to go and we are ready to go talk about the news. And there is plenty of news to talk about here today. So we had better get started because I got up a little bit late because I had a pretty sick weekend, unfortunately. So, so we can all get on and watch the Daily Ignoramus after this. Let's go ahead and get started. But before we get started, head on over to freedomscoop.com. Freedomscoop.com is going to be your one-stop shop for all of your news and commentary needs. We have got my shows. We've got The Generational Gap. We've got Stephen Ignoramus' shows over there. We also carry The Freckles and Brit Show, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, and The Already Conservative. So come on over and check us all out over there. Pick up some of our swag and help us support great creators. All right, let's get on to the news here. So, starting out today on the Dow, we will look at the chart, which looks like it slid pretty significantly throughout the day. 182 points down, bringing us back down almost to the 25,000 mark, but not quite there. We didn't get under 26.4. But yeah, it looked like it had a pretty big slide over on Friday, and we'll take a look and see what happened there and what could be happening coming up. So, from Investor's Business Daily, let me get rid of this tab here. Dow Jones Futures, three reasons to be bullish about coronavirus stock market rally. Gold shines, Apple, Amazon, AMD, lead, or lead earnings rather, flood. From Ed Carson, Dow Jones Futures rose Monday morning along with S&P 500 futures and especially NASDAQ futures while gold prices hit record highs ahead of stimulus news. And big earnings, Apple, Amazon, AMD, Alphabet, Facebook, report this week, as well as Shopify, ServiceNow, PayPal, Sprouts Farmer's Market, and dozens more. So the big earnings market is going to be what's carrying a lot of this forward as we look into it. The coronavirus stock market rally had a volatile week, but closing with modest losses after the NASDAQ hit a record high on Tuesday. The coronavirus stock market rally sold off sharply Thursday, fueled by the likes of Apple stock, Amazon stock, Google stock, Shopify stock, and Tesla. The indices extended losses Friday, but paired, lo uh, but paired losses. The Nasdaq suffered its first back-to-back -back daily and weekly losses for at least two months. Many big winners from the coronavirus market rally suffered serious losses to support levels. But here are three we uh, reasons rather, why last week's action was positive for the coronavirus stock market rally. First, the stock market rally was getting too extended. The NASDAQ was running to the top of the short-term and decade-long channel lines, and that short-term channel was already too steep to be sustainable. A stock market pullback or sideways action would be normal and healthy. If the NASDAQ slows to a steady jog from an uphill sprint, it's likely to keep rising for longer. The S&P 500 and real economy stocks are gaining ground. 
The Nasdaq had diverged too much from the S&P 500 during the coronavirus stock market rally, reflecting the huge outperformance by Apple, Amazon, Shopify, and other tech leaders. Those gains couldn't continue a week after week. But home builders, discounters, and a few other retailers are coming on, such as LGI Homes, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Lululemon, and Sprout Stock, sharing the burden of carrying the coronavirus stock market rally. It also reflects optimism in an economic recovery. Ooh, you'll never hear CNN say something like that. A stock market rally pause and some new sectors joining the leadership also gives a chance for tech giants and high flyers to take a break. Many are finding support at their 50-day or 10-week lines, including Shopify stock, offering the first traditional buying opportunities in a week for, or weeks or months rather. Though stocks and many others might go on to form new consolidations, perhaps even full-fledged bases. In other news, the CEOs of Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google reportedly test or will testify before the House Judici uh, Judiciary. <laughs> Judiciary is the word that I'm looking for. Antitrust subcommittee on Wednesday. The hearings had been pushed back from Monday. Apple stock, Amazon stock, Shopify stock, and PayPal stock are all on the IBD leaderboard, and the PayPal is also right below you in the description. So, if you like what you're seeing, throw me a buck or two. Helps me uh, build up some new technology, some new equipment, and help make this show better. And hey, my co-host needs a microphone too, so throw us a little bit of change and we'll keep making the show better for you. So our LGI Home Stock, Ali Stock, Lululemon Stock, and Sprout Stock, along with Tesla Stock, PayPal, AMD, Facebook Stock, Sprouts, ServiceNow are on the IBD50. Now, PayPal are on the IBD long-term leaders, while Google stock is the long-term leaders watch list. For the futures, futures today climbed 0.35% versus fair value, S&P 500 futures rose 0.45%, and NASDAQ 100 futures advanced 0.85%. Remember, overnight action in the Dow futures and elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate into actual trading in the next regular stock market session. Gold prices continue to rise, topping its prior record high set in 2011 amid a weak dollar. U.S.-China tensions and low interest rates, gold and silver stocks continue to shine. Senate Republicans reportedly plan to introduce their proposal for the next coronavirus stimulus bill. On Monday, there is little time to reach a deal with the Democrat-led House with extra unemployment benefits of $600 a week expiring this week. Those unemployment checks have been helped uh, prop up households and consumer spending with some 30 million people joining jobless roles during the pandemic. There are growing concerns that the economic recovery is already stalling amid rising coronavirus cases and restrictions that nobody seems to care about anyway. So, yeah, it looks like uh, Ed Carson thinks that there's good news on the horizon, and I mean, he does this every day for a living. I would trust his... Uh, I would trust his opinion on what the stocks are going to do over my own, but yeah, it looks like things are going to be looking good for this in spite of the fact that, yes, we still have the coronavirus fear porn being injected into our arms daily and daily. Let's look at another quick hitter here from Yahoo Finance just to see where they're pulling from and what they've got here from FX Empire's James Heyerzik. E-mini Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures Technical Analysis Possible Steep Plunge Under 26,298. September E-mini Dow Jones Industrial Average Futures tumbled on Friday, led lower by another plunge on technology. Stocks amid uh, escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. 
Among the Dow components, Intel dropped more than 16% after the chipmaker offered disappointing guidance for the third quarter and delayed release of its next-generation chips. The blue chip index also closed lower for the week, snapping a three-week winning streak where gains were mostly generated by a rotation from high-flying technology stocks into less volatile cyclical shares. On Friday, September E-mini Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average Futures settled at 1046075, down 8750 or 0.84%. Another Dow component, American Express, fell after reporting an 85% slump in excuse me, quarterly profit after setting aside nearly $628 million to cover potential defaults. People still use American Express? It's been quite a while since I've seen one. Meanwhile, Verizon Communications beat analyst profit and revenue estimates as the telecom saw strong demand due to stay-at-home mandates sending shares higher. Technology stocks Apple and Microsoft also traded lower. The main trend is down. According to the Daily Swing chart, the trend turned down on Friday when sellers took out the last main bottom at 26.330. The main trend will change up or change to up if buyers can take out the two main tops at 27.057. And 27.063, the minor trend is down. This confirms shift in momentum and change in trend. Thursday's closing price reversal is also a bearish chart pattern. The short-term range is 27.466 to 24.409. Its retracement zone at 26.298 to 25.938 is potential support. This zone is also controlling the near-term direction of the market. The major support zone is 25.053 to 24.484. That's a lot of analytics and a lot of analysis and a little bit boring, unfortunately. But it looks like IBD is saying, yeah, this is going to go up most likely. And Yahoo Finance is saying, well, keep in mind that this could also go down. So... Watch your stocks if you've got anything up in there and see what you guys can do to try and keep making money off the market or at least retirement off the market. Let's get into the news and I want to start off today talking about the highest paid person at Washington Post. And I think a lot of you people already know who the highest paid person at Washington Post is officially. But let's see what the New York Post has to say about it. Washington Post settles $250 million suit with Covington teen Nick Sandman. From Ebony Bowden. The Washington Post on Friday agreed to settle a monster $250 million lawsuit filed by Covington Catholic High School student Nick Sandman over its botched coverage of his 2019 encounter with a Native American elder. Sandman declared the victory in a tweet on his 18th birthday. It is unclear how much the newspaper settled for. On 2-19-19, I filed a $250 million defamation lawsuit against WAPO. Today I turned 18 and WAPO settled my lawsuit, he wrote. Thanks to Todd McMurtry and LLIN Wood for their advocacy. Thanks to my family and millions of you who have stood your ground by supporting me. I still have more to do, he continued. It's the teen's second win with a whopping $800 million defamation battle against a number of news outlets including the Washington Post, CNN, ABC, CBS, The Guardian, The Hill, and NBC. CNN agreed to settle with Sandman in January this year as part of the separate $275 million claim. Sandman and a group of his Covington classmates were vilified on school media, or social media rather, after they were filmed wearing MAGA hats after an anti-abortion rally while being yelled at by demonstrators. 
Sandman, then 16, was singled out after footage of his confrontation with Native American uh, activist Nathan Phillips was picked up by CNN and other outlets who claimed the incident was racially motivated. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of reports saying I mean, this is this is a good thing for him because he definitely could have, he can claim punitive damages. Everybody knows who this kid is. Absolutely everybody knows who this kid is, including every college board on the country knows who this kid is. His ability to go to college is shot at this point if he wants to go into any sort of high-end learning institution. It's absolutely shot at this point. He could face difficulty getting a job as he goes down the road as he gets older. I mean, people are going to forget about this eventually, but yeah, he, he's got a hard road to hoe. It may seem like he's living easy right now with a couple million some dollar lawsuits but that money's gonna run out at some point and he's gonna have some trouble getting jobs getting into college and many many other things I mean there are a lot of other uh, business owners that would hire him but some of the top-end jobs CEOs of big fortune 500 companies are probably out of his reach at this point because of what these journalists did to the poor kid and it's definitely their fault and they need to be paying out for it so yeah, he lost opportunity because of this, but yeah. Just to take these guys down a peg is amazing to come back and see. All right, let's keep going here because that's some good news that we have here. We want to start out with some good news and some happy news, but we have got a lot of dark news. Like this whole block right here is just dark, dark, dark news. So let's, let's take the positive note here and let's keep going. We'll start off with Fox News on the dark side. Rifle ammunition, Molotov cocktails found by Portland police responding to a shooting. Sunday marked the 60th consecutive night of protests in Portland since George Floyd's death. You know what I didn't do at the beginning of this, and I'm going to start doing this as we go along? When I do the introduction, I'm also going to point out how many days of 15 days slow the spread. And I actually looked it up before we went live because I wanted to, I actually wanted to say it in the intro, and then I realized I didn't have the monitors on and completely forgot about it. But... Welcome to day 130 of 15 days to slow the spread. All right, let's keep going here. From Edmund DeMarsh and Danielle Wallace, the 60th consecutive day of protests in Portland was punctuated last night by a bag of rifle ammunition and Molotov cocktails found by police responding to the chaotic scene. Around the same time, the ammunition and destructive devices were uncovered in the area. Portland police responded to reports of gunfire in Lonesdale Square Park. Two people were taken into custody near Southwest 4th Avenue and Southwest Salmon Street, but have not sent, or but have since been released. A person arrived at a hospital by private vehicle with an apparent gunshot wound, but the injury was not life-threatening. The Portland Police Bureau said in a statement, the police say they found a bag containing loaded rifle magazines and Molotov cocktails at the same park. A photo of the items was shared in a tweet from the Police Bureau saying someone pointed out the bag to officers in Lonesdale Square Park. Late Sunday, no further information was immediately released. Police said the discovery of the ammunition and the shooting around the same time did not appear to be related, though. The investigation is ongoing. Peaceful protest, everybody. Absolutely peaceful protest. Nobody's getting hurt. They're not doing it. They're just peacefully assembling, as is their First Amendment right. 
The shooting occurred about a block from where protesters have been clashing with police and U.S. agents, KATU reported. Tweets from the Mark O. Hatfield Federal Courthouse indicate another large, uh, large crowd late Saturday. It wasn't clear if the incident was connected to the demonstrations. The protests late Sunday started peacefully but intensified early Monday. Some demonstrators crowded around the fence surrounding the federal courthouse in downtown Portland and shot off, or shot off fireworks. U.S. agents deployed gas and flashbangs and warned protesters to stay off federal property. Hey, I wonder if Ted Wheeler was still there. Good old Ted Wheeler. Yeah, I'm just going to stand out in the middle of a protest and cry when I get tear gassed. So, yeah, there's... There's a ton of stuff going on with this. There's, but just remember, it is peaceful protest. There's no violence going on. Just all peaceful protest. All peaceful. They're not going to shoot anybody or do anything else like that. It's all peaceful. And don't worry, the mainstream media isn't going to cover it either. I was surprised to find this on Fox, actually. Them actually admitting the fact that there's something going on in Portland. Because they have been avoiding this like the plague, along with every other mainstream outlet. I kind of want to go out to Portland and see what's going on there, but I don't know if I can swing the time off because we've actually got something else in the works coming up here in November as well over on the Freedom Scoop Media Group. So pay attention for details on that as we figure out what's going to go on with that. That's probably going to be coming up here. There's, there's a very good chance it's going to be happening, so pay attention to that. All right, let's keep going here. I've got a tweet here to read from you with some video, so let's get your video ears on and... Let's hear what Mayor Lori Lightfoot has to say before we move on to actually talk about the news article that goes along with this. So, from the Hills Twitter account, let me get your headphones on. I've got mine on, and let's see what Lightfoot has to say. Well, I mean, that's classic Trump hyperbole. I sent him a letter on Monday outlining the very specific things that the federal government is uniquely qualified to help with, starting with common sense gun control. The fact of the matter is our gun problem is related to the fact that we have too many illegal guns on our street, 60% of which, 60% of which come from states outside of Illinois. We are being inundated with guns from states that have virtually no gun control, no background checks, no ban on assault weapons. That is hurting cities like Chicago. That is the thing that if the president really wanted to help, that and the other things I identified in my letter he could do today, tomorrow, but he's not really interested in helping in that way. I love that narrative. It is hilarious every single time that I hear that, that specific narrative. And it's, it's just stupidity beyond stupidity on this. First off, virtually no background checks. That is a federal law. That is not a state law. Which means here in Wisconsin, if I want to go out and buy a handgun, I need to take a background check. And no, there is no assault rifle ban here. That's only for big states with big cities out of there. But my biggest thing of this, of course, is the fact that, you know, why don't we make these other states suffer and pass laws for the fact that we can't control the problem that's coming on in here? If those guns are transferred of ownership out of Indiana, Iowa, or Wisconsin into Illinois, you're already breaking a federal law. There's already a federal law in the books for that. Transfer of ownership across state lines requires a federal licensed firearms dealer 
who will conduct a background check on the person in Illinois receiving this uh, item. And if they don't do that, you're breaking the law. Like, let's let's take Ron over here in the chat for an example, because he's always there, and I know he's going to be there today. But yeah, say I want to give my, I don't know, my 50 Action Express over to Ron Houghton. Because he lives in Oklahoma. Instead of me just going and him giving me a few hundred bucks cash for it and me handing it back over to him, that wouldn't work. We would be violating federal law. Both of us subject to, I believe it's up to five years in prison over it too. If I'm not mistaken on my laws here, instead I would have to go to my local federally licensed firearms dealer in Wisconsin, who would then check the weapon over for any illegalities, put it in a box, mail it down to Ron's federally licensed firearms dealer, who would at that which point conduct a background check on Ron for him to come and pick it up. That's how it has to get done, so yeah. No, you cannot, Lori Lightfoot, can't control what goes on in Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, or any of the other states that surround you that is illegal. We have federalism for this. That's against the Constitution. And you should be forced to resign because of your error in knowing what the policy is. So yes, they're already breaking laws. Enforce the laws that are already on the books if you want this problem to go away. But let's see now what uh, the Daily Wire has to say about this. From the Daily Wire, Chicago Mayor on Federal Troops, we can't just allow anyone to come into Chicago, play police in our streets. From Hank Berrien, appearing on CNN's State of the Union Sunday morning, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot ripped the idea of using federal troops to help stabilize her city, stating, we can't just allow anyone to come into Chicago, play police in our streets, in our neighborhoods, when they don't know the first thing about our city. Host Jake Tapper began his interview with Lightfoot, pointing out shootings were up 47% and homicides up 51% from last year. He noted, you are in, uh, accepting federal help from the Trump administration. Not everyone in Chicago is happy about that. A few nights ago, you had protesters outside your house unhappy with your decision to work with the Trump administration. What's the help you're accepting from the Trump administration, and what's your message to these protesters? Lightfoot argued, this is not about working with the Trump administration. I have drawn a very hard line. We will not allow federal troops in our city. We will not tolerate unnamed agents taking people off the street, violating their rights, and holding them in custody. Ooh, that unnamed thing is really dangerous because you're pushing on that edge of dehumanized people, taking away the humanity of people so you can load them up in the boxcars. That's not happening here in Chicago. Lightfoot threatened the federal troops, saying, So I've drawn a very, very bright line. I've made it very clear that to every federal authority that I've spoken with, and they understand that if they cross that line, we will not hesitate to use every tool at our disposal to stop the troops and unwanted agents in our city. Sorry, I'm going to turn your ears off just in case I get some autoplay up here. Lightfoot challenged Trump's assertion that his administration could help solve Chicago's problems by going with 50 to 75,000 people, adding that Chicago's leaders just don't want to ask, maybe for political reasons, but they don't want to ask. It's a disgrace. Lightfoot argued that what was needed was more gun control. 
The fact of the matter is, our gun problem is related to the fact that we have too many illegal guns on our streets, 60% of which 60% of which come from states outside of Illinois. She said, we have been inundated with guns from other states that have virtually no gun control, no background checks, no ban on assault weapons. This is hurting cities like Chicago. That is the thing that if the president really wanted to help, and the other things I identified in my letter, he could do today, tomorrow, but he's really not interested in helping that way. Tapper asked, would you support increased federal presence in Chicago as long as they coordinated with local officials, local law enforcement, and the U.S. Attorney? Well, I've said it before, and I will say it again. No troops, no agents that are coming in outside of our knowledge, notification, and control that are violating people's constitutional rights, the mayor replied. That's the, that's the framework. We can't just allow anyone to come into Chicago, play police in our streets, in our neighborhoods. When they don't know the first thing about our city, that's a recipe for disaster. And I go back to the original point that I made after I said it on the video. Get some, because your police are not enforcing the law right now, and you're seeing that because of the fact that you're inundated, inundated, with illegal guns coming in from out of state. Enforce those laws, or have the federal agents come in and enforce those laws, get rid of those guns, and see how much more willing your city police department is to go and enforce the law, which I have a feeling they aren't going to be willing to do so because you have told them not to. You've ordered them down and just let the people go out and protest. So, yeah, Chicago is a mess and I have no desire to go there at this point. I wanted to go take some time over this past summer before the coronavirus hit and go down and see the Shedd Aquarium because I like water and I've never really been to a big aquarium like that so I wanted to go take some time and see that but yeah, that's not going to happen right now. I have no desire to be anywhere near any sort of big city. So, that's what's happening there. We, can't, we cannot allow federal troops to come in and play police on our streets in spite of the fact that they're going in there to help you police. So that's what's happening out there in Chicago. Let's keep going down the list here. This is the weird story from Austin, and I have a feeling that there was a coordinated cover-up to this story because... I didn't hear anything about this until I saw it on Beauty and the Beta last night. I knew that something had happened in Texas, I just didn't know what it was. Because all I could see was the Karen fire that we're actually going to talk about later on in the show. But I knew absolutely nothing about this until last night. And then I went down the rabbit hole and found some stuff here. But we'll stick with the top of the rabbit hole right now and read what comes from the New York Post. Armed protester shot dead was helping quadruple amputee girlfriend, Mom says. From Jorge Fitzgibbons. A Black Lives Matter protester shot and killed in Austin, Texas Saturday has been identified as Garrett Foster, and his mom says he was pushing his quadruple amputee fiance's wheelchair before he was gunned down. A man who plowed his vehicle in a protester shortly before 10 p.m. Saturday, Foster pulled out a rifle and approached the driver, which at or at which point the motorist gunned him down, police have said. But the dead man's mother questioned that narrative on Good Morning America Sunday. Sheila Foster said his, her son was pushing fiancé Whitney Mitchell through an intersection when the gunman opened fire, ABC News reported. And this gentleman got out of his car and started firing shots. My son, uh, son was shot three times, she said. The mom did not say whether Foster had a gun, but noted that he was licensed to carry. Uh, from every video that I've seen out of this so far, he was open carrying an AK. And there were distinct rifle shots that came out before the handgun shots. 
Uh, Garrett Foster was rushed to Del Seton Medical Center where he was pronounced dead. Police said Foster and Mitchell were among the protesters at the 4th Street and Congress Avenue where the car barreled down the street. Eyewitnesses Michael Capociano told the sta uh, statesman that there were people around the car yelling and people sounding like they were frightened. Capociano said the driver then pointed the gun out the car window and opened fire. Foster dropped to the ground when he got shot, he said. Austin police said the driver is in custody and cooperating with police. About 50 protesters gathered outside the Austin Police Department headquarters early Sunday, the statesman said. So, yeah, like I said, I've seen a lot of videos on this. Like, while I was, when Beauty and the Beta ended last night, I actually started looking for videos of this. And yes, there are two, there are two distinct guns being fired in the video. So to just come out and say that the driver came out and started shooting, no. Unless the driver had a rifle and a handgun, which most of your uh, witnesses have said, no, he just had a handgun. There are two distinctive firearms being fired in this video. I want to read one more thing from CNN on this, just to get a second point of view off of this. One dead after shots fired during protests in Austin. From Noah Broder. One man is dead, and another person detained was for questioning after shooting during a protest on Saturday evening in Austin, Texas, police said. The victim has been identified as Garrett Foster, 28, according to Austin police. Officers were at the scene monitoring protests gathering or gathered in downtown Austin in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement when shots rang out on Saturday night, Austin police officer Katrina Ratcliffe said. Austin police chief Brian Manley said officers responded to a 911 call where the caller stated they had just shot someone who had approached their car window and pointed a rifle at them. When officers arrived, they began resuscitating, or, yeah, resuscitation efforts on Foster, but he died shortly after in a local hospital. Witnesses gave many accounts, including the disturbance uh, began when the vehicle started honking a horn, Manley said. Witnesses told police that Foster approached the car with an AK-47, assault-style rifle, while others in the crowd began striking the vehicle. The driver accused of shooting Foster was brought in by police for questioning, and his handgun and car were secured for evidence, police said, and another person who fired the gun at the car was brought in for questioning. Both had concealed handgun licenses and were released pending further investigation. There will be an autopsy to determine the official cause and manner of Foster's death as the investigation continues, police said. So, yeah, there's... This is something that we're going to have to keep attention on as we move along through here and go through the week and see if they bury this or see if they keep it up. But there's more to this story than what the mainstreams are telling us. There's absolutely more to this story. And I don't know what it all is. Like I said, there are two distinctive firearms being pushed in this. There are people that are saying that the paraplegic uh, girlfriend in the wheelchair was a cover to make sure that... Uh, basically be used as a human shield. I have no idea if I buy that or not because I don't know enough about the situation in there, but there's just, there's so much here. More than, I mean, this is one of the shortest articles that CNN has put out that I've read on this show. And um, other than the fact that, you know, sometimes they'll just put a caption on a video and call it an article, but this is a really short article for everything else that's going on in the situation. A protest, Black Lives Matter, a quadriplegic girlfriend, the guy open carrying an AK-47, walking up to the car, brandishing it. There's so much more to this story. And I don't know who was in the right. I don't know who fired the first shot, but 
All I know is if you shoot at somebody in Texas, there's a good chance that person is going to shoot back. Let's keep going down the list here. I got this video here, which I'll have to turn your earphones back on here, from uh, Midget B over in the Discord server. If you're not in the Discord server, we'll get one of my wonderful mods to put the link up in the chat there so you can come get into the Discord server and then you can also submit articles and videos for me to play up on the show. I like the Twitter ones because they're automatically shortened here. But uh, let's have a listen to what Kaylee McKennedy has to say. I haven't vetted this yet. I have no idea what it was that she said, but Midget B thought it was interesting. And let's see what she has to say here from Andy No. Video from my reporting and others on the Portland riots were shown at the White House press conference today. Some of the contents are so extreme that Fox News cuts away. Hashtag Antifa, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Let's have a listen. Trump administration will not stand by and allow anarchy in our streets. Law and order will prevail. And I have a short video for you because I want it to be real uh, what is happening right now in Portland. So if we could play that video, that'd be great. All right, uh, we were not expecting that video, and um, our management here at Fox News has decided we will pull away from that at this time. I, w I want to. Yeah, you were a little bit late to pull away from that one as well. But yeah, the, I mean, everything that's coming, like Andy Noah said, it's it's so violent that Fox News can't even show it up on TV. But it, just remember, it's a peaceful protest. So, yeah, that's what we have going on in this, and yeah, that was a good video. Thanks, Midget B, if you're out there watching this, either currently or after the fact. Thanks for putting that up in there, and thanks for giving us a chance to watch that. So, let's keep going here. Um, I've got one from The Federalist, which is not, it's, it's a rare, non-Green Check verified source for me, but I wanted to put it up in here. Take this with a grain of salt, of course, because it is coming from The Federalist, but they had an interesting take on this. I read uh, about halfway through this article. Um, it's interesting. Uh, let's just say that. From Tristan Justice. Oh, excuse me, I have hiccups. Legal Doc, St. Louis prosecutor tampered with evidence in McCloskey gun case. The gun Patricia McCloskey waved at the mob surrounding her home last month was inoperable at the time, but the St. Louis prosecutor's office ordered the city's crime lab to reassemble it to working order after confiscating the firearm, according to a local Missouri TV station reporting on Wednesday. 
Missouri law requires the government to prove firearms can be readily capable of fatal harm in order to score a conviction based on the charges filed against the, uh, McCloskey and her husband this week for their attempt to use legal weapons to deter rioters from their home. Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner charged Patricia and her husband, Mark, each with unlawful use of a weapon, a felony that can carry up to four years in prison for defending their $1.15 million home. In addition, they will lose their ability to keep and bear arms as convicted felons. According to Five on Your Side, Assistant Circuit Attorney Chris Hinckley directed Crime Lab staff to take apart Patricia's firearm. Then they discovered it was put together incorrectly, making it incapable of operation. In other words, Patricia might as well have been waving around a super soaker. Gun experts at the lab, according to the local NBC affiliate based on charging documents of the case, reconstructed the weapon correctly and successfully test-fired it. Attorney Joel Schwartz, who is representing the McCloskeys, who are personal injury lawyers, told Five on Your Side, the McCloskeys perfect, uh, purposefully misplaced the weapon's firing pin to make it incapable of shooting. It's disheartening to learn that law enforcement agency altered evidence in order to prosecute an innocent member of the community, Schwartz told the local news. The June episode, which the couple made good use of their constitutional right to protect themselves, has become a rallying cry for Second Amendment advocates, pointing to it as a prime example of why gun rights are needed. The case garnering national attention has earned the McCloskeys several appearances on primetime news and even the interest of the White House, which has come to the Missouri couple's support. Missouri Republican Attorney General Eric Schmidt formally requested the case be dismissed and the state's Republican Governor Mike Parson has pledged to grant them a pardon if they are convicted in, by the activist prosecutor. So, from my understanding out of this, uh, this was a prop gun that, because remember, both of these two were lawyers, but this was a prop that they used in order to demonstrate either a firing line or demonstrate some other form of personal uh, injury. This was not in operable condition at the time. The rifle was. And with her pointing it out to the crowd and the cutaway being what it was, because remember, when you're looking at this picture here that shows up in the video, you're not seeing off in the corner where they've got the uh, muzzle pointed back at the two of them. So I don't know if this actually has to be in operable condition in order for the charges to stick. I don't know Missouri law, unfortunately, so, and that's going to be a state thing, but yeah, that's, that is huge, and I don't even know, I wouldn't even consider this witness, or uh, evidence tampering if they put it back together to see if it was readily fireable. They already determined that it wasn't, and it is in the charging cases. This is, it's time to dismiss this case. These people legally defended their homes, and they need to be left alone big thing. They came into a gated community that Google Earth wasn't even allowed to drive in for a reason. They didn't want to be disturbed like this, and they had the money and the means to do so. And yet, here they are, getting charged with trying to defend themselves. Alright. Let's keep going here from the Daily Wire. Top Democrat Jerry Nadler. Violent Antifa riots in Portland are a myth from Ryan Saavedra. How's that mask doing, Nadler? Democrat House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler claimed without evidence on Sunday that the violent Antifa riots in Portland were a myth. Nadler's remarks directly contradict video evidence that is widely available on social media and contradict what the Department of Homeland Security says is happening in Portland. 
The violent situation in Portland has witnessed for the past eight weeks continues with violent anarchists rioting on the streets as federal law enforcement officers work diligently and honorably to enforce the federal law, defend federal property, and protect the lives of their federal officers. DHS said in a statement on Sunday as federal officers left the courthouse to respond to attacks on the fence, just like on previous nights, they were met by rioters with hard projectiles, mortar-style uh, style fireworks, and lasers that can cause permanent blindness. On the previous 24 hours, such assaults have resulted in at least 14 federal officers injured. Nadler was approached by the journalist Austin Fletcher and asked if he disavowed the violent riots. It is true there's violence across the whole country, Fletcher said. Do you disavow the violence from Antifa that's happening in Portland right now, these riots? That's a myth that's being spread only in Washington, D.C., Nadler claimed without evidence. About Antifa in Portland, Fletcher pressed. Yes, Nadler once again claimed without evidence. A person with Nadler, presumably an aide, rushed in to get Nadler away from the camera and took him to a car nearby. Sir, there's videos everywhere online, Fletcher said as Nadler walked away. There's fires and riots. They're throwing fireworks at federal officers. DHS is there. Look online. It gets crazy, Mr. Nadler. Dozens of people have been arrested during the violent riots in Portland, which have been going on for nearly 60 consecutive days. So, Nadler's trying to tell you that this isn't happening. And yet, we see it, and like I said, the mainstreams are trying their damnedest to make sure that nobody talks about any of this. They're trying to make sure that this just gets swept under the rug. Oh, nothing to see here. So we didn't go into the panic like we remember at the beginning of the chop. They did the same thing. They, nobody reported on the chop. I heard about the chop in the living room at Robert from the Generational Gap's house. Not on TV because he was talking about it because he had been looking it up online because I'd been traveling for two days before that. I heard about that from him because the mainstreams were not covering it. Nobody else knew about it until it was almost to the point of no return on anything and people started dying. So... This is what they're going to try and do with Portland as well, try and keep it swept under the rug because, hey, let them burn their own city. It'll be fine. All right, I got one archived here from the New York Times, a former newspaper here, speaking on some politics here. The FBI pledged to keep a source anonymous. Trump allies aided his unmasking after a Russia expert who had collected research on Donald Trump for a disputed dossier agreed to tell the FBI what he knew about it. Law enforcement officials declassified a roadmap to identifying him. From Adam Goldman and Charlie Savage. Not long after the early 2017 publication of a notorious dossier about President Trump jolted Washington, an expert in Russian politics told the FBI he had been one of its key sources drawing on his contacts to deliver information that would make up some of the most salacious and unproven assertions in the document. The FBI had approached the expert, a man named Igor Danchenko, as it vetted the dossier's claims. He agreed to tell investigators what he knew about or with the important condition people familiar with the matter said, that the FBI keep its identity secret so he could protect himself, his sources, and his family and friends in Russia. But his hopes of remaining anonymous evaporated last week after Attorney General William Barr directed the FBI to declassify a redacted report about its three-day interview of Mr. Dechenko in 2017 and handed over to Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina and Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mr. Graham promptly made the interview summary public while calling the entire Rus Russia investigation corrupt.
The report blacked out Mr. Duchenko's name and other identifying information, but within two days, a post on the newly created blog entitled I Found the Primary Subsource identified him, citing clues left visible by the FBI document. A pseudonym Twitter account created in May then promoted the existence of the blog, and the next day, RT, the Kremlin-owned English-language news and propaganda outlet, published an article amplifying Mr. Danchenko's identification. The decision by Justice Department and the FBI leaders to divulge such a report is highly unusual and created the risk it would help identify a person who had confidential, uh, confidentially provided information to agents. Even if officials did not intend to provide such a roadmap, the move comes at a time when Mr. Barr, who was to testify before lawmakers on Tuesday, has repeatedly been accused of abusing his powers to help Mr. Trump politically. Okay. Now, I wanted to read this here because I want to put something out on the table about this whole thing. First off, our whole government needs more transparency. We need to know a lot more of what's going on in there. But... The biggest thing to go along with this, of course, is an assertion that I have about this. If you're going to have, if we're going to talk about unmasking, I need some consistency out of the media and out of the government right now. I need you to have a consistent narrative over what this means. Because it can't be patriotic duty when Donna Brazile unmasks Michael Flynn. And then the evil, demonic William Barr when he unmasked Danchenko. You can't have it both fucking ways. So pick a side, pick a lane, and I don't really care which way you do it. Honestly, I have not one care in the world. I would rather you be more transparent in the government and rather know a lot more of what's going on there on the underside and on the overside. I would rather have a transparent government, but no, you can't have it both ways. So, and that's exactly what they're doing with this as well. It is, they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to say, hey, well, this is evil. If evil Donald Trumpler does it, but Mr. Obama, he's a saint. He is a saint and his unmasking is just for the American people and the better for the American people. No, you can't have it both ways. So this is archived, and I believe, yes, I have this in the Discord, so if you guys want to come out and uh, check this out in its entirety and see what it is that they're complaining about with this, it's, uh, it's quite a lengthy article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I did archive it, so you're not going to have to worry about subscribing to the New York Times or anything else like that, and it's right there. Go and check it out. All right, from Fox News, Stanley Kurtz on Trump's latest tremendous accomplishments and why media largely overlooked it. From Yale Halon. Stanley Kurtz, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, spoke to Fox News about what he called a tremendous accomplishment of the Trump administration, one, uh, one that the mainstream media apparently failed to notice. In an interview on Live Liberty and Levine that aired on Sunday, Kurtz shed light on the affirmatively furthering Fair Housing Rule, a law added by former President Barack Obama to the 1968 Fair Housing Act, which the conservative scholar said has aimed to expand federal influence over suburbia. Yeah, that's what we need, more federal influence. 
The AFFH rule sets out a framework for local governments, states, and public housing agencies to take meaningful actions to overcome historic patterns of segregation, promote fair housing choice, and foster inclusive communities that are free from discrimination, according to the U.S. Housing and Urban Development website. On Thursday, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Dr. Ben Carson, announced he's stripping Obama's AFFH rule from the Fair Housing Act, saying the rule was an overreach of unelected Washington bureaucrats into local communities, a point that Kurtz echoed. Very recently, President Trump, with the help of Secretary Carson, have in a very powerful and effective way put an end to AFFH as it was created under Obama-Biden. Kurtz explained, this is really a tremendous accomplishment. He added, people say that the federal government is often under a ratchet effect, meaning it only gets bigger. Or maybe if a Republican gets in, it stays about the same, but it never actually shrinks. In this case, Kurtz said President Trump, with the help of Secretary Carson, have actually countered the ratchet effect. Kurtz went on, not only have they peeled back virtually every, uh, virtually the entirety of the Obama-Biden AFFH rule, this radical overreaching rule, but they've even peeled back some layers that have accumulated over the original law, which weren't really about what was in the law even before the Obama administration began. So, I mean, he's shrinking the government. Not enough. We need to get a lot of a uh, lot more shrinkage of the government going on, but I mean, they're going in the right direction, at least. Still not going to vote for him. But they're going in the right direction, at least. Pull the people out of Afghanistan and EO away the uh, Patriot Act, and we'll talk. Then we'll talk, Mr. Trump, and maybe I'll vote for you then. But i I got to give credit where credit is due, and yes, at least he's going in the right direction with that. All right, let's keep going. From the Daily Wire, once again, I have a bunch of stuff from the Daily Wire. Well, this is my last one, but I had a bunch of stuff from there. Uh, Holly draws line. Dries line. Holly draws line for Scotus pick support. Must acknowledge Roe versus Wade rolling decided from Eric Quintanar. Oh, they are preparing at this point for Ginsburg to croak. I know they are. I know they absolutely are. Senator Josh Hawley told the Washington Post on Sunday he won't confirm any Supreme Court justice nominee who did not have a record of or noting that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided. I will vote for those Supreme Court nominees who have explicitly acknowledged that Roe v. Wade is wrongly decided, Holly told the Post. By explicitly acknowledged, I mean on the record before they were nominated. I don't want private assurances from candidates. I don't want to hear about their personal views one way or another. I'm not looking for forecasts about how they may vote in the future or predictions. I don't want any of that. I want to see on the record, as part of their record, that they have acknowledged in some form that Roe v. Wade was a legal matter, or as a legal matter, rather, is wrongly decided, he said. Hawley's decision to focus on abortion in the next confirmation battle, which may not even occur for years, <coughs> bullshit, is part of an effort to curb the judicial activism that has been emanating from the nation's highest court. Roe is and was an unbridled act of judicial imperialism. It marked, excuse me, marks the point in modern Supreme Court, said, you know what, we don't have to follow the Constitution. We don't even have to pretend to try said the freshman Republican senator. This standard, for me, applies to the Supreme Court nominees, whether they're a sitting judge or whatever, he said. After the Supreme Court ruled that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and transgender identification was unconstitutional, 
Back in June, Hawley criticized the 6-3 court opinion as representative of the end of the conservative legal movement. It would have been better to say the next or the text means what it meant when it was written in 1964, said Hawley, the Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was the legal basis for the case as reported by the Washington Examiner. You can't really do that from the bench, he said. Those decisions have massive scope. This is a huge decision with major repercussions across different fields of the law. So, yeah. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Where do I begin? I praised Josh Hawley last week because he was in the right on something, and now I have to walk that back because now he's being an asshole again. I've already said that uh, RBG is going to be the October surprise, and I stand with that. I fully believe that that's going to be what happens in October to try and ensure that President Trump gets ousted. The battle over who gets to decide who is going to be the next uh, Supreme Court nominee. And Hawley just made that 100% a thousand times more difficult in one sentence there because the next Supreme Court nominee is going to be picked based on that based on that law. Now, with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, with the records that they both put on this, now I don't agree with their records and what they did with this. I do think that this needs to get pulled out of Supreme Court precedents and pushed back into uh, legislative fields, hopefully at the states where it belongs. But with their voting records on this, it looked really, really, really closely like we were sitting at a point where the Supreme Court justice nomination wasn't going to matter as much coming up into this election. I knew it was going to be a thing no matter what, which is part of the reason they're artificially keeping RBG alive for as long as they... It's going to matter no matter what, but I thought it was going to be more of a backburner issue because of the way that they did this. And now Holly came out and said this on the record to reporters, and this is going to be the commercial when RBG steps down. If Biden isn't the president at the time, this is going to be what they run with, what they go with, what they dance around in red robes and white hats with. And every other demonstration that you see coming up in October when RBG either dies or steps down. So, thank you, Holly, for being an asshole on that. Alright, let's keep going here. So, just after the body is cold, now they want to go try and push activism against him. I guess him being an activist kind of makes sense out of that, but that's what they want to do. From the New York Post, House Democrats to rename voting rights bill after Representative John Lewis from Stephen Nelson. House Democrats will rename a controversial voting rights bill in honor of Representative John Lewis on Monday as his coffin is exhibited in the Capitol Rotunda. Lewis, a civil rights icon who died this month at age 80, supported the bill, and Democrats already renamed the Senate version of the bill after him. Third-ranking House Democrat uh, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina said Sunday he would submit a request to rename the bill on Monday. Congressman Clyburn is offering legislation to rename H.R. 4, the John, Lewis, or John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, tomorrow. The name change is expected to pass by unanimous consent, Clyburn spokeswoman Hope Derrick told CNN. Lewis, who represented Atlanta in Congress, is famous for a 1965 march for voting rights over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. The march was violently dispersed by police. 
There's also a campaign to rename the bridge, which is dedicated to a Confederate general and Klan leader. On Sunday, Lewis's body was driven over the bridge. Yeah, I could, I could see it renaming the bridge. If he was a Klan leader, absolutely I could see that. But as far as uh, the Voting Rights Act, let's keep in mind here that the Voting Rights Act that they're proposing in both chambers of Congress right now is an overreach and a violation of the Constitution. Article 2, Section 1 states clearly that the states have the rights to do voting. And the states have the right to regulate voting as they see fit. It's not a federal thing. It's not something for the federal government to come in. And, and that's why I rail against voter ID from the federal government every time it comes up, because it's unconstitutional. If you want voter ID in your state, you need to put the elbow into your state to pass the law. They have it in this state. And they can't get it repealed. Ebers can't get it repealed no matter how much he tries. They have voter ID in the state because the legislature and the Walker administration said, yes, it is time to have voter ID in the state. But yes, when they try and run it through the Supreme Court, Article 2, Section 1 comes up and gets struck down as constitutional. The Voting Rights Act is going to be the same thing, but they're going to try and push it. Oh, well, you don't want to dishonor the memory of John Lewis, do you? Oh, he just died and he was such an activist. You don't want to do that. So that's what's happening with that. And like I said, the body's barely cold and they're still trying to use his death as some way to push forward their political agenda. Let's keep going here. I've got a few more here, and then we'll do something that restores my faith in humanity. From the Hill, Trump likely to sign executive orders on drug pricing on Friday. This was almost completely overlooked. I saw it right as it was getting overlooked by something else on Friday, but I wanted to talk about this as well. Uh, reading from Peter Sullivan, President Trump is likely to sign an EO on Friday aimed at lowering drug prices, elevating a key issue for voters in an election year. While the plans could shift at the last minute, some GOP lawmakers have been invited to a presidential event on drug pricing on Friday at 3 p.m. at the White House in the South Court Auditorium to make the announcement according to an invitation obtained by the Hill. The exact details of the order remain unclear, but sources say one order is likely to include a version of the proposal to reduce some U.S. drug prices by tying them to the lower prices paid in other countries. An idea that had been in the mix earlier in the week to eliminate the rebates drug makers pay to negotiators known as pharmacy benefit managers is now unlikely to be included, sources say. The moves on drug prices come as the election nears and as Democrats have been hammering Republicans on the issue of health care, particularly a Trump-backed lawsuit to overturn the Affordable Care Act. However, it remains unclear when uh, any of the actions can actually take effect of uh, the power of the power to implement drug pricing policy through executive order is limited, meaning it will likely take time for the formal regulatory process to uh, play out after Trump signs the orders. Asked about the plans, the White House spokesman, Judd Deere, declined to discuss the specifics, but said the president continues to explore any and all options that will deliver lower-cost drugs, while ensuring we have access to the most innovative vaccines and therapeutics in the world. I don't like any of this. I think this is a complete overreach, and I think you people know why I think this is a complete overreach, because the government should have no business forcing drug makers to sell things at a certain price, no matter what they cost. Now, the fact that he's tying it to countries around the world eases my conscience a little bit on this, not much, but a little bit, because 
they're not going to sell it at a loss in other parts of the world. They're not going to sell these drugs at a loss. So to have the EO come out here and say, okay, this is what you're going to tie this to what other countries pay means that they are at least going to have to reassess and see what their profit margin is on this. But I think it would be a lot easier if we just took out the restrictions and let people import the drugs from places like Canada or other countries around the world, wherever they can get it the cheapest from, if, the, if you want to control the drug prices. And take some of the patent laws off of it as well. Take some of the FDA regulation out of it, some of the patent law out of this, so generics can come along, which will drive the price down. Because if a generic company wants to come out and make this, and sell it for undercut the main manufacturer, who's going to gouge the price out of it, then that's the free market at work. So let the free market do what it's going to do. But since with the ACA in place, we can't let the free market do what it's going to do, we do have this option here to do that. And I hate it. I think it's an evil idea. But if it's what we need to do in order to actually get something meaningful happening, or even get rid of the ACA and get some free movement of this stuff here so we can undercut each other or undercut the big manufacturers that are going to gouge for it. If it's a step, it's a step. But yeah. For the most part, it's a government overreach. All right, let's keep going here. This is an old article from uh, Wisconsin Public Radio, which, once again, I'm not going to read this in my public radio voice because that's public radio and that's going to put people to sleep and it's the beginning of the day and people need to go out and get their work done for the day. No, we're not going to do that shit. But we're going to read this here because they're actually talking about this. So this was trending on Twitter when I got up this morning. So, I mean, you actually see Trojan Horse Candidate up here in the corner. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about where this came from and why they're talking about it now. So, from Rob Menser in Wisconsin speech, Pence calls Biden a Trojan horse for socialism. Vice President Pence called his Democratic opponents socialists and warned that uh, presumptive nominee Joe Biden was a Trojan horse for the radical agenda in a speech Friday at Wisconsin's Ripon College. Pence touted the economy of the first three years of the Trump administration and said Trump took extraordinary action to combat the COVID-19 pandemic this year. But the bulk of this address, which was billed as a major speech by Trump campaign officials, focused on defending or defining Biden as an agent of the radical left. Pence con uh, connected Biden to former Democratic primary candidate Vermont, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and other self-identified Democratic socialists in the party. Our roads lead to greater freedom and opportunity, Pence said. Their road leads to socialism and decline. Biden was perceived as a moderate candidate in the Democratic primary, defeating candidates like Sanders, who called for the more dramatic policy shifts on health care and economic inequality. The Biden campaign recently released a policy document under the name Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force that laid out new proposals intended to combat climate change and reform the nation's criminal justice system. Of the document, Pence said the only thing it ended up unifying was Joe Biden to the radical left. The Biden campaign blasted Pence's visit ahead of the speech in a statement. Deputy campaign manager Kate Bedingfield said the Trump campaign is once again sending Vice President Pence to the Badger State to do damage control for this administration's historic fail uh, failure of leadership. Oh, he's leading. They just don't want him there anymore. So with, uh, with that in mind here, and I, like I said, this article is a week old, but 
so I don't want to go into too much detail about it. But yes, they're calling Biden a Trojan horse, which honestly I think he is. The man can't string together a coherent sentence. And everybody else who ran for president had way more extreme ideas than any of this. UBI, universal health care for all, universal this, universal that, universal everything else. Rack up the money, rack up the money. And Biden just kind of stood on the stage and talked about corn pop. So now we're going to sit back here and we're going to see what happens here. And I, I think Biden or uh, Pence rather is right on the money with this. But of course, now everybody on Twitter is out there rushing out and saying, "Well, Trump, well, Donald Trump, or he's the Trojan horse candidate because you know he's 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 a Trojan horse for Russia and organized crime and it's, uh, everything else. He's evil. He just mean things on Twitter." So yes, now they're both going to try and run the Trojan horse narrative for everything. Alright, let's keep going here. I've got one from the Washington Post. Archived, of course, because I'm not going to pay their subscri uh, subscription fee. This is an opinion piece. Reagan Foundation to Trump, RNC. Quit raising money off Ronald Reagan's legacy. From Karen Tumulty. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, which runs the 40th President's Library near Los Angeles, has demanded that President Trump and the Republican National Committee quit raising campaign money using Ronald Reagan's name and likeness. It was simply handled with a phone call midweek last week to the RNC, and they agreed to stop, Reagan Foundation Chief Marketing Officer Melissa Giller said in an email on Saturday. Sorry. Excuse me. Hiccup. What came to the foundation's attention and compelled officials there to complain was a fundraising email that went out on July 19th with Donald J. Trump identified as the sender and a subject line that read, Ronald Reagan and yours truly. The solicitation offered for a donation of $45 or more, a limited edition commemorative set featuring two gold-colored coins, one each with an image of Reagan and Trump. The coins were mounted with a 1987 photograph of Reagan and Trump shaking hands in the White House, receiving line. The type of fleeting contact that presidents have with thousands of people a year. Friend, the fundraising email purportedly from Trump said, I just saw our new Trump-Reagan commemorative coin sets, and wow, these coins are beautiful. I took one look and immediately knew that I wanted you to have a set. These aren't any ordinary coins. They symbolize an important time in our nation. This year, in addition to being re-elected as your president, it also marks the 40th anniversary of our nation's 40th president, Ronald Reagan. Unfortunately, we already sold out of the first batch we had in stock, but I like these coins so much that I asked my team to rush order another batch for my top supporters only. Oh, can you imagine that crying lady from last month that got the other email about the Trump army? Could you imagine her seeing this, seeing this email? It cautioned, I've authorized a very limited production of these iconic coins, which is why I'm only offering them to our top supporters like you. This offer is not available to the general public, so please do not share this email with anybody. So, I kind of see this. I, I can see what the Reagan uh, Foundation is saying with this because, yeah, there's, I mean, there was no way for Reagan to consent to this. All they have is the people that are in the foundation itself. His likeness is not open source. So they should have had, they at least should have had to go through some hoops to get this on there. But if they were just striking this without the permission of the Reagan Foundation, then yeah, this is a violation and they shouldn't have been doing it. But it's still petty as fuck, too. 
And yeah, I don't. I think if they'd have sent the letter and asked for permission, I think it actually would have gone through without a hitch because I do think the Reagan Foundation is in Trump's corner. I mean, the two candidates are very similar in their history and what they brought to the presidency. They were money guys, the both of them. Reagan didn't have to go through near as much of a fear porn pandemic as Trump did, but they are very similar in both ways. So, yeah, we'll see what happens there. I thought that was interesting. A uh, couple more here. The Daily Mail is blocking me off with an ad blocker. We'll talk about this tonight, so I'll get this archived and we'll do this uh, the right way here. So I'm actually going to skip over this one for now. We'll talk about it on uh, the Red Ned show tonight. Because uh, Elaine actually put the same article into the, uh, into the document that we use to uh, coordinate with each other. So we'll actually be reading from the same article, no less. So we'll skip this one for now. All right, the last one here that I want to talk about is this fire that happened in California that they used to cover up the Austin shooting. 200 plus firefighters respond to Karen fire burning in Jerupa Valley from CBS LA staff. A wildfire broke out on Saturday afternoon in Jerupa Valley, leading to a response of more than 200 firefighters. The Karen fire was reported just after 3 p.m. on Sierra Avenue and Karen Lane. The fire grew up or grew from an approximately 5 to 10 acres to roughly 250 acres as of 8 p.m. Containment at last check was at 50% and 225 firefighters from California Fire, Riverside County Fire Department, City of Corona Fire Department, and San Bernardino County Fire Department were on the scene battling the fire. Forward progress on the fire has been stopped, but resources are expected to remain overnight to uh, monitor conditions. No injuries or structural damage have been reported and no evacuations have been ordered. Sierra Avenue between Armstrong and the San Bernardino County line has been closed. Incident updates can be monitored at rcvfire.org. So, yeah, Karen Fire was going everywhere because they're having yet another wildfire in California. But a lot of people were making fun of the name that was called Karen Fire, which we saw because it was, it started at Karen Lane. We're making fun of it because of the racial slur Karen that is absolutely legal to say on Twitter, even though any other racial slur will get you banned immediately. Uh, they were trying to compare that with that trend of Karens, and there were some funny takes that were going along it as well. So we over at the Freedom Scoop Media Group put our hearts out to the people of California who are going to lose things out of this, uh, this wildfire. We hope it gets under control, and we hope that you can rebuild. But for God's sakes, manage your assets and resources better because you know you're in a dry state, and you won't burn off underbrush that leads to wire, uh, wildfires. You won't do it in a control burn. So you guys should probably do something about that. All right, and that's gonna be it for the news here. What we do on Monday after the news is we talk about something that restores my faith in humanity. And this uh, weekend, I was out for wings with the old lady. We were out uh, having a good time. Hadn't seen each other for a few weeks give her a birthday present, but we went out and we had some wild wings and I was telling the story. It was a story that had happened when I lived in Massachusetts about a, uh, a heroin addict that came from around the corner, thought that her boyfriend was cheating on her, who she lived with because they were having a party together and slashed some tires in the parking lot. Somebody's tires. We don't know whose they were. We didn't go around the corner to look. And my three roommates and I, all of which were under 21 at the time, were sitting in the bed of uh, one of my roommate's trucks drinking beer when all of this happened and the police came up and 
asked us about it. We told them they didn't know, and they sent us on our way with two of them being, or three of the people on the truck being 19 years old and drinking beers. So they never asked us for ID or anything, but I was telling that story, and the waitress actually came up and listened to, in on the story as well because in coronavirus Wisconsin, with social distancing in place, the Wild Wings was actually pretty empty at the time. Like, there was nobody in there. So she was having a slow night, not making a lot of tips. I gave her a pretty good sized tip based on the uh, based on what the bill was, just because I felt bad that there was like nobody in there. There was nobody in there paying tips, and they had the dining room so empty that you couldn't get a lot of people in there anyway. And the fact that she sat down and listened to the story, but she also pointed out the fact that she was a recovered heroin addict, and now that she was off the needle, she had gone off and uh, rebuilt her life found a great guy. They had seven kids, which she had brought, they both brought uh, three, to come, uh, combined they had brought, uh, brought five into the marriage, and then they had two more on top of it, on top of each other. So she had seven kids. She's just building her life back up, working in a couple places at a hospital and then a Wild Wings to try and make ends meet, and, and just rebuilding her life off of this. Now, I had a run-in where a heroin addict forgot to tell me that she was hooked on heroin, and went on a second date with me, which wound up in her holding up in my house for four days and detoxing cold turkey. It was an interesting time. So I've had very interesting dances with the drug. I've never tried the drug myself, but I've had interesting dances with the drug. But to look back and see somebody on something that, from what I understand, is that addictive, to be able to get off of it, clean up, go on work in a hospital, raise kids, and rebuild a life, that restores my faith in humanity right there because humanity is strong. We are strong creatures. We can overcome adversity, and it's an adversity that kills people. So good on this woman. I never caught her name, but good on this woman for going out rebuilding your life, rebuilding the next generation because so many people in my generation have taken it upon themselves to not have children. So this woman coming out and raising seven children, putting them out into the world with a positive message onto this as well. Good on this woman. That restores my faith in humanity. So that is a, that's a good thing. As bad as it started, that was a good thing. So that's what it's going to be coming up out of this here. And that's going to be our show for the day. So make sure you come on over in tonight at 5.30 p.m. Central Time and check out the Red and Edge show. We have so much news to talk about. This week, it's not even funny. Like, I don't know how we're going to get to all of it in a two-hour show. There's so much. We're going to be rushing it along. We're going to be moving it right along. But there's just so much there. But as always, we will be there reading your chat in between topics. So make sure you get your chat in as well. So come on in and check us out. And if you can't check us out, you can check us back out on the audio platform as well. Other than that, we will be back here tomorrow morning with more news headlines and getting you off on your way to work on a Tuesday morning. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary.